Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober. The podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Penny Winsor. Um, Penny Winsor is an author and she has written a fantastic book called Tender, which I know will just be of really, really great interest to a lot of our listeners um, because it's about being in a caring role. And many of us are carers in one permutation or if that's the right word or another manifestation um so <laughs> I'm really excited to to dive in and talk to Penny hi Penny how are you doing I am good thank you thank you so much for having me uh it's an absolute delight and I was just we had a little bit of a, a catch-up just sort of saying hi before we pressed record and I was saying that I absolutely loved your book and it made me cry because I resonated with it. And in terms of being a carer with having extra needs within the family and yeah, someone articulating what I've just been through. So thank you. Oh, oh it's just, yeah. I mean, that's why I wrote it <laughs> for that exact reason. Cause I think what I found was that there was, um, there wasn't much exploring the nuance of caring out there. I felt quite frustrated that it was, considered in a very binary way either you're an angel put on this pedestal doing this incredible amazing thing um or otherwise your life is something to be pitied um and that people feel sorry for you and that you sort of um don't really have a place in society and you know it's a sort of binary that we see in lots of areas of life including motherhood and the narrative around motherhood um but I just found that actually I wanted nuance I wanted people to um understand that it is both um, a huge challenge and a joy and the things that we gain as carers are immense um, but that does that comes at a price too um, and there's lots of ways that, that society can be supporting carers much better. I love that I think it is you know it's that whole thing about it taking a village I remember saying on the podcast once it takes a village to raise a child and it just happened that at the moment my village happened to be social services yeah <laughs> it was like you know um yeah, and you no, don't want to say that as a parent, but sometimes yeah. it comes to no, that, it, right? It, it, it's so true. And I think that was, for me, I know I found that very difficult. I think particularly because, you know, just to give a bit of background, I was also a carer to my mum when I was a teenager. So it's not my first caring experience. But I remember when I started to realise that I couldn't do this like other parents were doing it. I needed so much more support than um, than a parent of a typical child was going to need. I remember being so frustrated and angry, and partly I think that's because I have been a carer before, and part and one of the consequences of that is I'm a very independent person. Mm-hmm. I had to become quite independent quite young, and so it sort of felt like a double frustration in a way that I had um, I had to rely on the outside world to help raise my child. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's hard to admit that you need help raising your own child um and yeah but I think it's really important that we talk about that because we're certainly not alone I don't think any human should be raising a child completely alone ever but I think we underestimate what that really means when we say it takes a village and you're absolutely right I mean 
for me, for instance, my son's specialist school is a huge part of our village, huge. And that's partly the emotional and physical support we get. But it's also just um, having a resource to go to when something goes wrong or something, you know, something happens, someone to talk to, knowing that I can call them and they uh, know our family well and they know my son's needs well. Um, just somewhere to go in the same way that maybe a typical um, person could just go to a friend or to, you know, next door neighbour or something like that. So, yeah, our village looks a little bit different to a typical family. But, yeah, it includes school. It includes his social worker. It includes um, respite carers. It's sort of, yeah, it's it's more complex, but it's definitely yeah. a village. Yeah, I, I really hear you on that. And um, I've got, you know, similar similar experience with school, um, which has been a long time coming and a real mm. battle to get in place in a really scary couple of years trying to, trying to get there. Um, and the relief, the relief that someone can support and can understand and can get you and kind of see the the joy as well see the strengths in our mm. kids right because that's the other thing like you said it can be very binary in terms of how how it's seen you know yeah because it's like no not everything is plain sailing and happy and rainbows and unicorns we need support but however you don't want to then suddenly end up feeling pathologized and yeah stigmatized you know and it's like okay and that's what I guess you're saying in terms of okay what are the social systems that need to kick in to support people right yeah yeah to support both disabled people who want to live their lives who just want to get on and live their lives and might need some support to do that and also for unpaid carers who also just want their family members to be able to get on and live their lives as best they can um and it's really interesting because, you know, like I interviewed a lot of carers for the book and not one of them said to me, I don't want to do this. Not yeah. one of them. I mean, but almost all of them said they needed more help than they were yeah. getting in order to make it work. So it's not about not wanting to support your family members at all. It's a privilege, actually, to be able to be a carer for somebody, to be somebody's right hand person, you know, to support them. But and it's well, it's part of love as well. It's part of family relationships. It's a na- very natural part of life. But we can't just expect, particularly women, to just um, lose everything in the process. There's ways that we can support carers in order for them to live full lives themselves whilst they're also supporting somebody else's needs. Yeah, 100%. And I'd love to dive into that um, a bit later, but I was wondering if we could you could tell us a bit about your story um, to maybe put a bit of context for, for people listening in. Sure. Well, my son was uh, diagnosed as autistic when he was three. Um, he's now 11 years old. Um, I've, I'm originally, you can probably hear from my accent, not from here. I'm Australian, although I've lived here for a very long time. Um, but, um, but so I also then got divorced when my children were five and three. Um, my, my son, Arthur, has a little sister who's two years younger. She's nine years old now. Um, so so that's the context of our family at the moment is I'm a single parent with these two children, one who's disabled and one who isn't. But I was also a care for my mum when I was a teenager and she died by suicide when I was 22, um, which was just after I'd moved here to the UK, just after I'd finished university. Um, and so it's not my first experience as a carer. And that's been interesting and part of the reason why I wanted to write the book, because I felt like um other people weren't making that connection, whereas I sort of felt, particularly when my son was first diagnosed, quite actually afraid 
of the support needs he was going to have because I had done it before. I had supported somebody else's high needs before. And, um, you know, from the outside, you sort of think, well, those two situations couldn't be more different. You know, a a teenager supporting a mum with severe mental illness um, and then, you know, somebody in their 30s looking after their own child. But actually, you know, when you hold someone else's life in your hands, it's sort of um, there are a lot of similarities, even when the circumstances are different. And so at first I was very afraid that his needs would be very high. Not that he was, I wasn't afraid of him being autistic, actually. That wasn't, that wasn't a, that much of a problem for me at all. It was more how high his needs were going to be that worried me and how much he was going to need me. Um, because I don't think I had a kind of rose-tinted idea of what it was to support somebody else um, because of my previous experiences. But, um, but interestingly, I also really over you know the, those next few years really realized just how much my mother taught me through the experience that we went through and how much I'd learned from her and that experience and how it really put me in good stead actually to support my son as well. Yeah and there's it's interesting what you said about the flip of being a young carer and learning those skills of independence and then having to kind of flip it to accept help and accept me because that's the bit that we're not because we're not we're not taught to do that we don't mm. we you know and it's like wow it's almost like a master class in kind of like both ends of the spectrum it is it's like really having to let go of a lot of ego when you're a parent carer where you have to really accept that you can't do it on your own and I think for people like me who for whatever reason has ha- have had to to be very independent very young and have been you know especially as a woman very praised for it and really applauded for it all my life and you know had it reinforced by absolutely everywhere in society that to be independent is the best thing to then realize that actually that's just not how humans work mm-hmm. that we are interdependent and that, that that's okay and that's as it should be yeah it has been hard lesson to learn and it's funny this whole past year of course has really shown me why I hate being interdependent. I really hate it sometimes, still, even now, because, you know, support can be taken away. And um, and so to, to need support, it's, yeah. you know, this year has been a reminder of why we are deeply uncomfortable with getting support. Because, you know, families like ours, you know, can't function alone. We absolutely cannot function as a small unit. No. It just is not possible. And so... This year has, there's been so many times this past year where I've just, you know, been in a bit of a crying mess on the kitchen floor going, this is why I hate depending on other people because you can't actually rely on anybody else. You know, you can't, you can't rely fully on the world functioning, sadly. Mm. Um, But I, so it's not, it's not the smooth journey. It's not easy to, to accept um, how much support we need, but I do know it's really necessary and Interestingly, I think my relationships are so much richer for having to ask for help Mm. um, than if I had continued on that path of being hyper-independent. Yeah, and I love what you said about that kind of, there's the the, the ego thing where I think that I would articulate that in the way that the pressure that I put on myself, like I had all the stories about my upbringing and the fallout from that. Some, you know, there were obviously was some strengths. There was a lot of challenges. 
Now, my particular story was that I've sorted my shit out. And so therefore, I'm not going to I'm going to be able to create somehow the kind of perfect family. It's not going to be like it was like. And I yeah. think we all have some version of that. Yeah, right? we all have that. I'm that old. I'm not going to be like my mom or my dad or whatever. Um, and, and you hear it actually to bring it back to the sober conversation. Often you hear this thing like, oh, it ends with me. It stops here. You know, there's the family dysfunction. And I'm like, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that's not possible sometimes it doesn't it's like what is it it's like we there's there's a need for that sort of self such a lot of self-compassion and support to realize that actually you can't make it perfect now you know yeah you, yeah as I had much to let as that we go. want to I was like shit I thought I was bossing this and actually yeah. we're all going we're all with the family is falling apart you know and that was scary yeah said. it is um, scary no I I completely agree it's my um you know, my mum was very well for the first half of my childhood until I was 11. Um, and then at 11, she, it started with severe panic attacks and then led to depression and eventually to alcoholism. And so I have this childhood of these two halves, you know, this quite idyllic half. Mm. Um, and then followed by this quite extreme h- h- part where I was you know, essentially, you know, taking care of myself and taking care of my mother because my parents were divorced and my dad was living in another country. So although we had his support financially and emotionally, not physically, I mean, um, and we were certainly not alone. You know, we had some extended family and things. We were not alone alone, but we were the only ones in the house with my mum. And so it also, I think, took a long time for all of us to realise the extent of how bad things have had gotten as well, which um, you know, I think part of that is to do with, you know, and obviously this was a while ago, but, you know, we didn't even have a language for talking about what was happening. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening can relate to that. This idea of, you know, if you've grown up in a family where there's some kind of dysfunction happening, if we don't have the language to articulate it, we can't we can't even reach out for help. Um, Got to name it to tame it. Exactly. And I think, um, and I think, interestingly, I... I think partly because my mum was so well when I was young, I've always felt as if almost my mum provided me with a lot of the protection I needed to cope with her needs as she got older because she was such a responsive and incredible mother for so many years. Um, And our relationship was very, very strong. So I went into those really difficult years with a very solid foundation and you know, had had spent, and it my my early childhood was was I would say you know on really solid ground, if you know what I mean. So I felt very fortunate, and I think I've always recognised that that's been a big part of how I coped with the teenage years was the solidity that I had in my early years. Um, but it's interesting because I'm so fascinated with this idea of like um, whether we can choose our way out of family problems, you know. Um, I think I learned so much from my mum's experience and also my mum was very emotionally articulate about her own experience and we talked about a lot. There was no mysteries around what was happening. She wasn't hiding anything from me. She really talked me through what she was experiencing and to me, although often that was a bit too much, too young, I look back now with so much gratitude that she was able to articulate her experiences because I didn't have to make up any stories in my head about what was happening, which I think is so important and something I try and remember with my own children when things are difficult, you know, like different moments like this past year or if I have difficult moments with my son, 
and we're having a really hard time being able to articulate that honestly with my daughter in an age-appropriate way is really important um but but you know I I came away from the experience with my mum after she died of first of all because she was always very open with me I knew how hard she had tried you know there was no when she died there was no sense of from my point of view oh she should have tried this she should have done that she should have made this different choice um I absolutely knew my mum did the best she could you know, and I also knew, and I don't even know how I knew this, to be honest, probably with a bit of support from um, from the people we had around us, but I knew that it wasn't my responsibility, you know, that I could support my mum and I could be there for her and I could love her, but I couldn't save her, yeah. you know, and that you actually can't ever do that for another person. All you can do is just be there. Mm. Um, and so... When she did die, I, I wasn't left with a feeling of, well, I can totally control all this because I can make different choices to her. Um, I think what I've been left with is, um, is more that I'm very Mommy, fortunate sweetie. that... Mommy, sweetie. Hi, darling. Yes, darling, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. <laughs> we'll see how he goes. I might have to take a break for a second and sort him out, but... So, you know, it sounds like, I mean, obviously it was, you know, an awful thing to go through, but you were left with that sense of, you know, it, it wasn't your fault and you couldn't have sort of changed it. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's all down to my mum and how she handled the experience. And she didn't protect us from it in the sense of like she didn't hide it from us, but she did, she was determined that I, particularly me, as um, as the only girl in the family, would learn from her experiences because she did, um, she did feel like there could have, she could have stood up for herself in different ways earlier in her life in a way that maybe would have led to a different road for her. Mm. And you know what happened to my mum was very complex, and I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and speculate to exactly what happened to her, but she knew that there were some things that she wished she had done differently. Um, and she really wanted me to always look after myself equally mm. um, because she felt she hadn't done that. Um, and part of that is, you know, waiting for a very long time before she reached out for support and all that kind of stuff. Um, and she felt like perhaps things could have been different for her. First of all, if society had treated her experience a bit differently, um, she was very felt very ashamed that she had a mental illness, very, very ashamed, which is one of the reasons why I'm really happy to talk about her experience quite openly because I know she would have been very supportive yeah. of that. Um, but also partly because obviously treatment was very different back then in the 90s and and things, thank God, have moved on from what she experienced um, as well in terms of treatment. Um, but I do know that, that the most important thing for her was that we didn't go through something similar to what she had been through um and I promised her that and so I've been very fierce about looking after myself and it's really interesting because of course I've ended up in a in a situation as a mother where I really really have to like I really it's crucial you know I can't not look after myself and partly that's the um the long-term nature of being a parent carer you know it's not looking after your child until they go off to university at 18 and and of course that's not when parenting stops you always provide emotional and sometimes financial support for your children 
for a very long time to come, but it's a very, very different level of support than a child who is not able to reach full independence. Um, um, well, and how do you look after yourself? Oh, in so haul, many different you know. ways. Yeah, yeah, tell us. I mean, really, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but actually work is one way that I, I, I'm, I look after myself. And that's for a number of reasons. I think, firstly, we don't talk enough about how important it is to financially look after yourself and to look after your future financially. Um, I want to be able to continue to support myself and my son indefinitely. Um, and, you know, these are crucial working years when you're the age that most women are when they become mothers. And so to come out of the workforce, as many carers have to, it has an impact on the your finances for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. um, including pension contributions, but also how much potentially you can earn for the rest of your life. Um, so for me, I feel very strongly that, um, that work helps support me in a number of ways. Partly that's also, I'm very fortunate. I love the different kinds of work I do. I do a few different things. I'm, I have been a photographer for 15 years, um, but I'm also now a freelance writer. And now I have another business um, uh, supporting other uh, writers as well. Um, but, you know, it's not just that I enjoy my work. It's that I enjoy the fact that I know I can support my family as a single mm-hmm. parent. Um, and also that um, I know that when I work I can also access some extra support that I wouldn't be able to access if I wasn't working. Um, so earnings, earning some money rather than, um, you know, being at home full time means that I feel better supported as a yeah. carer because I can afford that little bit of extra support. Um, so for me, that's really, really crucial. That And also, you know, I love the work itself. Um, you know, it gives me a great sense of purpose in and of itself as well, which is so important. And I think we we downplay the idea of purpose so much. And I do get a huge amount of purpose from my children. I really, really do. But I also think it's important that we don't um, expect women to only get purpose from their families, um, even though, of course, there are lots of people who do and there are lots of men who would very happily just take all but of their purpose from their family. But it's working out who, what, what you need as an individual as yeah, well, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things in positive psychology where meaning and purpose, it really puts fuel in your engine and it can it really provide really an does. income, but it gets you over hard times. It's a real resilience builder having plugging into your meaning and purpose. So 100%. Yeah, completely. There. Mm. Yeah, completely. And I think that's underestimated, particularly when it comes to women. And because carers, because it's like, this, well, you and should carers. have purpose because you should be looking after this one. Your purpose is this is other person. Yeah. yeah. And um, and that's, you know, for some people that might be true, you know, mm. and that's great if that's true for you. But I think we have to be really careful in our expectations of where people um you know get their their sense of purpose from um so that's a big thing work is a huge thing for me really um I think without work everything else starts to fall apart um the other I mean for me the other really really big thing is reading actually reading is a huge part of how I take care of myself I think that's for a number of reasons I think you know partly we read to feel less alone and when you're reading the stories of other people through different things, other humans going through different things, you do feel far less alone. 
But also the act of reading and narrative structure is, I think, a really wonderful release emotionally as a um, as a person. So, you know, to be able to see a story through mm. from start. It's a catharsis, is, isn't it? Yeah, there is. And I love mm. that. I love that classic narrative structure. And I yeah, get so much too. satisfaction from that. Yeah. So, but like, it's got to really... have a good ending, though, right? You have to have some, not necessarily happy, sparkly ending. But, but a resolution. To... Yeah, that's so true, yeah. I mean, I do read a bit of literary fiction that isn't quite so tidy, um, <laughs> and that's fine. Like, I enjoy it, really enjoy that well sometimes, done. actually. But I, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, when I'm in, when I need something that's going to really transport me and take me away, a really great classic narrative structure where not it's not a happy ending, but there's like a strong resolution at the end, oh, that feels good. I love that. Oh, That's... you said resolution, yeah. yeah. I thought you said revolution, and I was like, oh, come no. on, Penny, come on, we're starting to I mean, get occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> occasionally, but no, resolution. Yeah, resolution, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just for that sense of satisfaction that something's tidy, you know, your own life might be a messy, unending narrative, but, you know, there's something so tidy about a film, particularly film and literature, because of the, you know, being able to complete it in a short period of time. I find TV much less so unless it's like a short series because TV just ugh, goes forever and ever and ever. It's another um, thing. I was just going to, sorry to jump in. I was saying this in the last podcast about our lives being like, you know, like the tiny stitches in tapestries and you don't, mm. they don't make sense because you can't pull back and see. It's only when you get yes. expected to pull back and you get that when you're reading the narrative, right? You get yeah. to pull back and make all the sense and be, in a way that we don't on our own lives. And I think that's part of that that's very, very therapeutic and satisfying it's for us. very therapeutic. And it's mm. interesting. I was listening to something recently where they were talking about, like a psychologist on a podcast was talking about how we're all coping. You know, now this is all this, this year has been going on. So this past year and a half is now going on so long. Um, and and she put, said something that made so much sense to me. It was something, something like, you know, she said, we now, we now are often need to engage in therapeutic levels of self-care. And... I have to say, I really have been doing therapeutic levels of reading this past year. That's that's probably how I would how I'd put it. I read a lot, um, and it's funny. It's it's sort of. I think some people think, oh, good for you, you're reading a lot. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm doing it because it 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 feels good. It feels like self care for me. I would not recommend it for anyone who feels like a chore. That's not yeah. you know. It's definitely something that you know. I would recommend if if it you know feels as good to you as it feels to me, mm. but. Um, I would say they're my two go-to, but, you know, community really is probably the other thing that really is the kind of um, makes everything else in my life function. And that's, you know, um, having community online as well as in person. And I think we sometimes downplay the importance of online communities and they can play a hugely important role, particularly for carers and disabled people who maybe are more isolated. Obviously, this past year, everybody has experienced, you know, quite high levels of isolation for, and some but some people for the very first time but for those of us who are carers we have we've been through um and disabled people of course been through periods of of isolation before um and sometimes in an ongoing way um because we might not be able to access things that the people around us are accessing so I think online communities can be absolutely amazing yeah. for, the for how community we is, yes I'm, I can essential. imagine it's just yeah it's a really yeah. similar yeah. thing in terms of needing to connect with, you know, because obviously yeah. we live in an ableist society or we live in a society that doesn't 
value carers and also we live in a normative drinking culture so there's othering yeah. layers of othering that are happening there so I, I very much relate to yeah. that what you say yeah yeah definitely so I think they're probably my my three big main ways mm. of caring for myself and it's funny like it's probably not what most people think of when you say taking care of yourself but for me those are really the essentials but that's yeah, really essentials. interesting isn't it in terms of self-care because I I sort of I, I'm a passionate advocate of self-care and it's not it's like radical self-leadership for me I think yes. self-care yes and it's like yeah. you've said meaning and purpose you know financial security we've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs there we've got okay I've got my mm-hmm. basic needs being yeah. met I've got meaning and purpose that's right up the top right and then we've got community which is a life and we know that don't we we know that mm, absolutely we, we, that we are pro-social interdependent human beings and we've got to have our communities mm. and then you've got your place of joy and your place of flow which is your work yeah. but also your reading so you've got a place of flow yeah. and, and nourishment so I think people listening in you know it's it's obviously it's finding your menu but those are some really yes, important exactly. elements right aren't they what lights yeah me up? what you know what sustains me and I, it's really interesting because I find it particularly around carers, um, I do find it frustrating that the that the financial and the work aspect is often left out of the conversation because, I mean, I know that not everyone believes very strictly in the, in the Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, but, you know, it's the, such a basic thing to have some kind of financial security. And the fact that that's often left yeah. out of the conversation drives me crazy because, like, I'm, what's the point of a bath if I'm worried about keeping a roof over our head? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of me doing a yoga class if, really like, you know, I, I don't have enough support for my son? You know, like, um, it is fundamental. And it's the po- a point of privilege to not note, note that. Yeah, exactly. Check your privilege if you don't think the money is important, right? So you go, I know. Really? Yeah, it is. Live without it? Exactly. Jeez. Money is is absolutely vitally important. I yeah. think as well. I think it's important as women that we we have these discussions very openly about money because I think traditionally, it's something that's maybe not talked about very much. Um, and yeah, earning an income is 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 absolutely vital to my mental well-being just because I know I'm looking after myself and my family Mm, um and so it's not just obviously the immediate needs being met it's just knowing that I'm meeting our needs going forward as well um and so I would really love to see this idea of self-care being expanded to be a little bit more broad and to include some really what I would consider basic human needs um Mm. and not just our needs for rest which by the way obviously I 100% believe is vital you know absolutely vital but I think it's you know you know our self-care needs to kind of the conversation right needs to go way beyond you know getting rest yeah and I think it's the the care is like well there's again a gradient of responsibility it's like at some point that's not the individual's responsibility that is society's responsibility yeah yeah and you know and it's all of that that's a very very conveniently landed square on the shoulders of women yeah um, and in a very beautifully packaged unpaid way so it's a massive (laughs) massive issue like you say it causes enormous stress to people it is Um, yeah it does cause enormous stress and I think um we sort of 
also there seems to be a lot of pressure there's just so much pressure for um for people to be these quite perfect humans as well mm. you know just the right amount of self-care the right amount of time with your oh. children the right amount of time working the right you know this idea of balance yes and I think that's a bit of a red herring the idea of balance because life isn't tidy in that way mm. and also um you know we might go through phases of life where we're really putting a lot of energy into certain things like caring for young children or like um you know trying to qualify for something or yeah. you know putting some hours in at work to be able to mm. you know step up whatever it is there are going to be periods of life that are unbalanced oh pandemics yeah very unbalanced it's life this past year it's not perfect pie no yeah. And so um, so I think there is also just a lot of societal pressure that we get mm. sort of just the amount of right of time, exercising, sleeping, eating. Yeah, it can um, end up being a lot more pressure, I think. And, yeah. and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we see, you know, women that I work with, that sometimes comes up in terms of, you know, we say like, you know, I'm sober and the rest is good enough. Let the rest look like a bit of yeah. shit today. I'm sober and the rest is bloody good enough. And it will, you know, call off the hunt. We can't use this as another rod to beat ourselves with. Yeah. I really hear you with that. Such a, we've got to, you, it's almost like you've got to really watch out for that because that could, that could come round. It can, it, it, it can. Really and coming through the back door of pretending to be your self-care friend. Yes. Yes. And it's like, but you're the meanie. You're the in the meanie. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like we almost have to detach a little bit from all of that. You know, um, I can see around me a lot of quite obsessive behavior almost around self-care. Like as in, I have to get it right, I have to get it right. Oh, yeah. Um, I have to get the right amount of sleep, I have to get this, I have to do that. Um, and I think that's where it can tip over into danger where we become um this sort of never-ending on this never-ending treadmill of trying to perfect yeah, ourselves in a way yeah. and I mean I found really and this is something I do struggle with particularly around parenting I think for me the only the really bits I struggle with in terms of self-criticism are the things that are very high stakes which when it comes to things like parenting it is because it just involves other people you know other people that you love very much and so you want to get it right I'm less of a kind of perfectionist and everything around, you know, work and stuff, because I feel like the stakes are much lower when it, you know, comes to if I mess up at work, it's not, you know, might have some financial consequences or something, but it's not like a, that big a deal. But whereas when, you know, when it comes to parenting and, you know, raising a disabled child, particularly, um, you know, that's really stung me quite a lot. And that's, that was a surprise, actually. I never identified in any way with these perfectionist tendencies, particularly, until I became a parent and realized, oh, it's because it's because the stakes for me are really in this one. And um, that has been really interesting. And and just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean it has gone away completely. Yeah. I mean, gosh, the grief I give myself over, you know, screen time and, you know, things like that. And um, yeah, it's it's hard, but I have to keep well, I, I come at it, try and come at it with with self-compassion is how I try and do it. Just one second. So what would be your top tips, do you reckon, for any pe parents, carers out there that are, that are struggling at the moment with their load? Really, I mean, I think, first of all, just even recognising that what you're doing is caring is so important. And I think this is um, this is something that is is really hard to do, actually. I know um, in all kinds of situations, um, for parent carers, I know that um, a lot of people think if you 
if you call yourself a carer, it's somehow eclipsing that you're a parent, but it, it doesn't, it, it's, it can, they can, you can be a parent and a carer. And I think it's really important to recognize that because what it does when we recognize that that's what it is that we're doing is that we recognize that actually um, the unpaid work that we're doing is, is far above and beyond what a typical parent might be doing, which means that, you know, you need to ask for help. And you will need more help than your best friend down the road who doesn't have disabled children. Um, and that's okay. And that that's actually to be expected. You know, there's, um, you know, the way I see it is that my son's needs are not unreasonable. You know, I don't think his needs are unreasonable at all. He's disabled. That's just the way it is. But actually, I that doesn't mean I can handle it on my own because his needs are very high. Um, so I, you know, I need support meeting those needs and so first of all I would say absolutely the important thing is to recognize that's what you're doing I know there's been a lot of research to show that you know um the longer people wait to recognize them sure the longer people wait to recognize that um that they are carers um the more that they miss out on in terms of physical um emotional and financial support yeah for sure and I remember actually um sitting in a social services meeting and then suggesting yet another parenting course and I suddenly had this light bulb moment I said it's not a parenting issue I, I have care I have care a burnout exactly exactly and, and that's the thing is that I find really really um frustrating because as you know any parent carer listening will know the expectations on the amount of um facilitation we do in terms of like therapy and stuff for the people that we support um is, is very, very high. Um, and so often what we don't need is more education um, and, you know, more ideas of what to do with our children or what to do with our challenging circumstances. Often what we just need is, is less responsibility, yeah. you know, yeah, like more less. people. Yeah, so exactly. True. And and so that can be the very frustrating thing about when you do reach out for help, often the help you get is not always appropriate. Yeah. Um, and it can take a long time to find appropriate support. I know for us, it was really years of slowly things bit by bit adding and changing. I mean, for us, you know, the real clincher was my son going to a specialist school, you know, who are absolutely incredible. Same and way. I think I felt for the first time that I had, I had, I had support. Like, you know, it's different to somebody coming for a few hours and taking them off your hands so you can have a break. That's one thing, but that's only a very small thing. Actually, what you need is, is, is to know who to call when you don't know what to do or something goes wrong or, you know, someone who's not going to be afraid about what you say when you're, say, exp explaining some new challenge that you don't know how to deal with. So I would say that although um, it's not, once you identify as a carer, it's not like you magically get all the support you need. I really, I'm not saying that and because I wish I, I wish I could say that. But it does open up the possibility for you to allow people to help you more but also for you to go searching for appropriate support as well. So that would be my number one thing. Um, and then I would say surround yourself with people whose families look like yours. Um, and even if you only can do that online, that's fine. But I think, you know, it's really natural for humans to compare themselves. I think we beat ourselves up too much for comparison. It is a natural human thing. Um, what we often can control, though, is, is who we're surrounded by you know I have lots of families around me both in person and online whose families look very much like mine and within that my family is really typical and I love that 
And also that's part of the reason I love that my son goes to a specialist school as well, because he is he is a typical student within his school, um, which I love that, that, that that's possible for him. Um, so community is vitally important. So I would say that as well. And then thirdly, I would say, you know, keep checking in with yourself about what it is that you need, because actually it might not be what people are telling you you need or people are telling you what's available to you. Um, and there might be other ways of finding it. So having some kind of self-reflective way of checking in with yourself, whether that's journaling or, I mean, maybe it's even um, accessing therapy if you can, um, which is a bit easier now that, that, that it's available, more available online. Um, but even just something like journaling, which is completely free, um, to be able to check in with yourself about what it is that you need, because actually it might be that actually you need to do more hours at work and that will support you better or you might need to quit work and to be um, at home full time or it might be that you need to negotiate a way of having a few hours off on Saturday to go see a friend regularly or whatever it is and only you can really answer that no one else can tell you what it is you need so having some way of having a self-reflective activity can be incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for talking to us Penny it's been amazing and I can you know I can relate to so much of what you're saying and I think a lot of people will as well in our community in the sober community you know this uh, we've mentioned before the sort of neurodiversity um, is this big links you know coming up whether we recognize it ourselves or within our families you know it's such an important conversation join up all these dots you know about support about how people yeah. cope so um, it's been amazing to talk to you and because well, we're on Zoom, see your little one. I know, bopping around. Apologies for he has, and apologies for the noise, everyone. Yeah. I do and have you know a self-isolating child. Yeah. That is, <laughs> and, and you know, we talked about this before, and we said, you know what, that's fine. This is real. This is keeping it real. We are two mums, just like Mandy and I. When we chat, we are two mums, and we're talking about life, and we're talking about our experience as parents, as carers. Um, and you know what? This is what it. This is what it is, isn't it? And this is important. It's important to be real, right? Yeah. That sells permission. So, um, yeah. Okay. And if you're um, immediately concerned about your drinking, just reach out. Send up a flare info at lovesober.com or check out the online community like Penny said. Penny, have you got a place people can reach you? um yeah you could they're probably the easiest place is instagram and it's just at penny Winsor, and i'm on there quite a bit um but yeah um that's probably the best place and we'll link your book in the show notes it's a fantastic book um and it really like i said it made me cry because it was it articulated so much of what i've just been through in quite an isolated way so thank you for putting it out there penny Thank you so much and, for having me. Um, yeah, look forward to, to seeing you around as well. I'm sure we'll see each other again. I hope so. If you love the Love Sober podcast and it's helped you to get, stay or love sober, you can support us by heading over to patreon.com forward slash love sober pod and contributing £1 per episode. Thanks so much for your support. Bye from us. <laughs>